Demographers study the way populations change. The things they might focus on include births and deaths, living conditions, and age distributions. In the United States, population change is tracked nationally by the Census Bureau. A conversation with retired chief demographer of the U.S. Census Bureau, Howard Hogan, is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me is regular panelist John Baylor, Emeritus Professor of Statistics at Miami University. Our guest today, as I mentioned, is Howard Hogan, retired chief demographer at the United States Census Bureau. He joined the census in 1979, where he worked on household surveys, business surveys, and the population census, and where he led the statistical design of the 2000 census. Hogan also served as an expert witness in Utah v. Evans, in which the Supreme Court considered the use of imputation in the 2000 census. He taught as an adjunct professor at the Department of Statistics of George Washington University and is an honorary fellow of the American Statistical Association. Chance recently featured an interview with Hogan, and we're happy to have him joining us here on Stats and Stories today. Thanks so much for joining us today, Howard. Pleased to be here. Could you just describe what the job of the chief demographer of the census is? Um, yeah, it's it's a senior research position that basically you get to research anything you want and uh, work with uh, whoever wants to work with you. It was a chance at pretty much the last few years of my career to mentor all the um, younger generation and, and teach them what I'd learned about census taking and survey taking and demography over my career. So it was a it was a chance to collaborate with just lots of people. It's one of the best jobs the federal government has to offer, maybe the best. How did you get there? You know, can you give us sort of a synopsis of your your career journey that, that led yeah. to this fun, this position? Yeah. Well, after after I got my my degree in demography, I spent two years in East Africa working on the uh, surveys and and the, and the Tanzanian census, and then. After a brief uh, time down at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, was hired by the Census Bureau to, as part of the 1980 census, to use uh, demographic methods um, to measure the undercount and specifically to see if there was a way to determine the uncertainty, some sort of range of variance, however you want to say it, around those demographic met methods of, of measuring the undercount. As part of the 1980 census, the Census Bureau was sued by Detroit and a number of other cities about the undercount, and I got involved in, in, in that litigation at a very low level, uh, writing some, some responses to their queries and whatever else. Soon after that, um, I was put in charge of determining a method to measure the undercount for the 1990 census. That was a, spent the entire 1980s uh, perfecting well, uh, perfecting is maybe a bit strong, but certainly improving in the, the methods uh, that, that were being used and essentially the methods we developed in the 1980s with, with improvements, obviously, are the, the methods that they, they've been using uh, to this date. Then after 1990, I moved over to the economic area and worked on economic censuses and surveys for a while um, and then moved back to the um, decennial area where I was, uh, as, as mentioned in the introduction, the, the head of the statistical design, not the operational design, the statistical design for the 2000 census, then back over to the economic area for a few years, and then back to being the associate director for demographic programs, which is in charge of all the household surveys, uh, 
including the, under, the unemployment survey and the crime survey and all of those, as well as the demographic estimates, the projections and the estimates. And then after a few years of that, I was offered the position to get out of management, uh, out of supervising, out of doing budgets and taking a senior research position uh, as chief demographer. And, and that's pretty much what I had, had wanted. I was very happy to take that. And that's, that's where I finished my career. Howard, you mentioned the undercount a few times when you're talking about your work with the census, and I wonder if you could talk about what and what the undercount is and why it's something that, that you, you have to pay so much attention to. Well, the census is used for a number of things. The, 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 the three most important is, is dividing the, the 435 congressmen uh, between uh, the states. Then it's used by the states to draw their congressional districts within the states. The first is called apportionment, and the second is called redistricting. And then it's used by the federal government to distribute billions and billions of dollars. So when a, a, a city, mainly cities, uh, determined that they might have been undercounted, they feel they were cheated out of both representation and out of money. In the 70s, as, as you may know, a lot of, lot of big central cities lost population. And so suddenly um, the undercount became very important to them because they were losing and they didn't want to lose more than, than, than they actually had. Uh, in addition, in the, in the late 60s, but certainly by, by 1980, uh, the one person, one vote was, was well established and, and they, they realized the cities and states the importance of having um, a good census to measure that one person, one vote. So be, between the two, it became politically really important. The flip side of that is demographers, uh, starting with Ansley Cole, but also uh, Jay Siegel at the Census Bureau, had been de developing methods to measure the undercount. Before that, there were some sketchy ideas about how many people might have been missed, and some of the census directors pretty much <laughs> implied we, we I, I still use we a lot, we hardly miss anybody. There might be a few you know, hermits out living in the desert, but really we get everybody. And demographers uh, pr pretty much proved that that was not true. Following up on that, then statistician, using demographic methods as, as you know, uh, births minus deaths plus immigration minus immigration tells you how many people should be counted. In, in addition, statisticians um, led by Eli Marks and others began to use uh, follow-on surveys, what's called a post-enumeration survey, where you go out or the Census Bureau goes out and does a second survey, but then they do a one-to-one -one match to see how many people in that second survey uh, were also counted in the, in, in the census. So the, the proportion of people in the second survey who, was, who were missed by the first survey gives you a measure of the undercount. Then to get a measure of the net undercount, of course, then you have to go to the census and verify how many of those people uh, how many of those records refer to a unique person uh, who should have been counted and had been counted only once? So we've had these uh, two parallel methods of, of measuring the undercount for, for many years, and I'm, I sort of have one foot in, the, in each camp. You know, it's, it's, that's, it seems like such a, a, a natural and intuitive way to, to, to quantify when, when that occurs by using this, this post-enumeration survey. But it, you know, so it, but if it was consistent, I mean, if you had this the same degree of undercounting in in urban versus rural, then maybe it's not an issue. But but one of the key issues was was that it's differential, right? There was a absolutely correct. I mean, if it was a uniform undercount, almost all the uh, there's a few exceptions, but almost all the uses are proportional, so it would make no difference. 
but historically and in, in, in census after census, African Americans uh, are undercounted much more than, than white Americans. The undercount of back in the 70s and 80s, uh, 70 census, 80 census, 90 census, the undercount of black adult males was really high. I mean, over 10%, uh, as I recall. And then once we were able to measure the undercount of Hispanics, it's also high. Uh, measuring the undercount of, of Native Americans is kind of difficult to given a number of technical reasons, but um, that seems to be also high. Renters um, are m much more likely to be missed than, than people who live in, uh, you know, owned homes. So there's, there's the flip side of that, of course, college students are, tend to be disproportionately counted twice. Once at college where they should have been counted, and once at home where their parents are, are paying the uh, tuition. You know, the, 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 as you were talking about kind of your, your trajectory there, and your, your last piece, you mentioned that, that you love this work as chief demographer. What, what were some of the, 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 the most, the coolest projects that you had a chance to work on when, when you had that, that last position? Well, I think the most fun project was a few years ago, there was all these um, news articles about how this one lady born in January 1, uh, 1946, was the first baby boomer uh, to you know, qualify for Social Security. And, and that seemed wrong to me. So um, I gathered the um, time series for right after the World War II, and then I collaborated with, with Bill Bell, uh, who's a just fantastically good time series analyst, uh, and, and between the two of us, he did the, the hard mathematical work, we, we showed um, pretty precisely when the baby boom actually began. It began in uh, July uh, 1946, and, and we did this all statistically. Uh, it turns out, I love this, it turns out that's almost exactly nine months after, after the end of the war. <laughs> so, <laughs> go figure. <laughs> we, we, we didn't know that's, that's how it would turn out, but it's how it turned out. What propelled your interest in demography? I, I had the really fantastic opportunity to study for a year at the University of Stockholm, thanks to the Rotary Club. And at that time, I was interested in regional planning and city planning um, and realized that if you're going to do any regional planning or city planning, you needed to know some, some demography. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty simple. So when I, I went to Princeton University at this, uh, what was then called the Woodrow Wilson School, I was doing city and regional planning. But immediately they said, well, there was a course in demography. I might as well, might as well take that. And after one semester, I had fallen in love with demography and fallen out of love with uh, uh, city planning. So uh, <laughs> I, I continued on that track. And um, by the way, um, did you know that the University of Miami was the home of, of, of demography in the United States? I mean, Miami University, Oxford, Ohio. Is, is the home of, of demography in the United States. It, it had the first program. Yeah, they, there's still the, the Welpton Lecture is still hosted annually. So, yeah. Okay. That, so, it, so, that, so, yes, I did, I did know that. I, was, uh, I, I had some affiliation with the, the folks in, in the Scripps uh, Gerontology Center now. But, yeah, I, that, that's a pretty cool history that it's had. Well, I'm, I'm, and I'm, ex I'm delighted that you know that, too. That's, that's neat. 
Well, one of my professors graduated from there, so he told me. Or he actually taught there, so he told me. <laughs> you know, with, with this, uh, the, the thing that you mentioned also as part of the, your different uh, responsibilities you had within the census, it, it really highlights something that, that we've talked about before on previous episodes where we've had some, some of the uh, census colleagues of yours, was just the diversity of products that the census produces. You know, I think there's the sense of the decennial census is such a well-known and, and the impact of it is well appreciated. But some of these other, these other pr uh, surveys that are routinely and regularly conducted, it's not clear that they're well appreciated. You know, can, can you just give a kind of a, a, a summary of some of those, the, the, the types of things the census is contributing? Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, we've we mentioned the, the, the every 10 years decennial census. And then we have a number of household surveys, the, the biggest and, and right now is the American Community Survey where we're out literally almost every day of the year uh, collecting data on veteran status, fertility, uh, unemployment, um, household uh, housing, almost every demographic topic you can uh, think of, immigration status, mobility, uh, and that, that, that is, it's such a large survey, we're able to, to publish da uh, pretty local data. In addition, the other very famous survey is the, uh, the CPS, the, the, uh, the where we measure the um, un un unemployment. That's a collaboration with the Bureau of Labor Statistics, but the current population survey, we go out uh, every month and, and, and collect data on unemployment, and together with BLS, uh, we publish it. We a lot of these surveys are in collaboration with other federal agencies. They 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 fund it and, and we do it. The um, crime survey, computer computer ex, uh, expenditure survey, uh, a number of those. Then, as long as we're still on surveys uh, over on the ec economic side, we do one of my favorite surveys, which is the um, uh, monthly retail trade survey, and and that's a that's really the literally the very first indicator of how the economy is doing. So at 10 working days after the end of the month, we publish economic data about what the economy is doing. And you will, um, I got to work on that survey. It was a lot of fun. We, the data were released at, um, on the dot. I mean, we checked with the national uh, clock uh, at 8.30 on, on the day it was re released. And um, the, like the, the, the stock market and the bond market and the futures market would have reacted within, within nanoseconds to, to our results. So it was, it was fun to work on a survey where you just knew right away, everybody was just eager to see what, what, what you had to say. Uh, additionally, there's, there, there's a number of economic surveys, but additionally we do the um, population uh, uh, estimates that, where we fill in you know, the population between decennial censuses, working, again, working with our state partners to get the, the data and, and a lot of federal uh, programs are actually based off of the uh, POP estimates program. And we, as a demographer, one of the fun things to do is the population projections program, where we, um, we project what the populations look like. And, and that's where you will read about how, um, for what it's worth, the press loves to, to report on, you know, at, at, at such and such a date, the United States will become a, a minority, majority, or majority, minority country, and, and this is going to be a great turning point. Those news articles are all based on of our, our projections, and um, so it's, that, that's a lot of fun to do as a demographer. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking to Howard Hogan, retired chief demographer of the United States Census Bureau. 
One of the things that I saw uh, a lot leading up to the 2020 census was a discussion about mistrust of census, uh, of concern about whether people will participate and sort of what that means for the undercount and, and, and so many other things that rely on census data. And I wonder sort of what your take is on the mistrust of census and what can be done to sort of help alleviate that. Yes, it's it's the mistrust is there, and especially prevalent in, in 2020. Uh, the, the the voluntary participa- participation in the census has been declining. The Census Bureau has a almost uh, a perfect record of, of protecting the confidentiality of its data. People have to go back to what happened in 1942 and World War II to find a, uh, anything to point to uh, to say the Census Bureau cannot be trusted. You know the last. 70 years uh, has been virtually, uh, I won't say we never made a mistake, but, but it, it, we're, the Census Bureau staff is fanatical about protecting confidentiality. Um, now, how to get that message across to the American public? It, it, it's, it's a challenge because at, at the final analysis, we're part of the federal government. And if people uh, don't trust the federal government, uh, don't trust the, pres- the promises of the federal government, then they don't say, well, but the Census Bureau is completely different, even though in many ways it is completely different. Um, it just, it's, it's a matter of outreach. The, the, the part, I can't remember the exact numbers, but the, you know, the, the way the census has been done since 1970 is, is we mail out a questionnaire and ha- ask people to respond voluntarily before we go knocking on doors. By 2020, that was a lot of done on the internet. But the, the voluntary, initial voluntary participation has just been falling decade by decade by decade. Um, as it has in, in almost all uh, household surveys. So it's a general societal cha- uh, change. And I, I don't, I wish I had a, a, a good solution, but um, we partner with um, community organizations, tribes, um, cities, uh, states. We partner with everybody we can partner with to uh, spread the word that, that, you know, we're good guys and um, you can trust us. And I'm no longer retired. I want to be clear. I'm I'm retired. So when I say we, it's 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 my my love. I am no longer speaking for the Commerce Department, the Census Bureau, or 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 any official uh, capacity. Well, if, if it's hard to imagine something more important than things like uh, apportionment, redistricting, and distributing, uh, you know, so much money to these various districts. So, it's important work. So it's important to be to be heard, I, and, and people clearly care about it. I mean, you 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 mentioned over the course of uh, both your article and and previous comments, you know, the the nineteen eighty census uh, lawsuit, nineteen ninety census lawsuit. 2000 lawsuit and there were different aspects that that kind of whether it was early on you were mentioning the undercount as being a trigger for for uh, these kind of concerns and legal action but but later it was there were aspects of of sampling and imputation and it was it was really fascinating you know as as someone who was teaching statistics at that time to be tracking this and talking about this in classes could could you just give a little bit of a summary of of what was the what were some of the issues that surfaced in the, in the 1990 and 2000 census certainly the there's there's sort of uh, uh, two issues one is there's a, a, a strictly statistical issue is how precise one can measure it. Of course, any any survey, including a post-enumeration survey, has has survey errors in it itself, and and whether those survey errors uh, would swamp what you're trying to measure or not is a statistical issue that uh, was was greatly discussed among statisticians. 
In addition, there are, there are two legal constitutional issues, one of which is that the Constitution talks about counting, talks about a, an actual enumeration and counting the whole number of people. My personal understanding is when they said actual enumeration, they meant something that's not a political deal. Uh, the first apportionment was a political deal. But the courts, the Supreme Court has interpreted both of those uh, pretty much to, to say um, you can't, you, you, you pretty much have to come, come pretty close to a, a nose count. And I'll come, come back to that in a moment. And then when um, sampling was uh, introduced in the census, the first census to use sampling was the 1940. Uh, when that was introduced, the Congress added a, a, a provision in the law saying it cannot be used for apportionment. Now, I think what they were thinking is, you know, you can't just count every other county or every other household, but that's what the law says. So there were a number of lawsuits. The final one, uh, when it reached the Supreme Court, um, they, they, they basically said, uh, we cannot use uh, the post-enumeration survey, which is based on sampling, uh, to correct the apportionment. They didn't really address whether it could be used for other, other uses, um, but the, the politics of it were such that uh, every attempt the Census Bureau uh, had to, to use the uh, post-enumeration survey for other uses got, got shot down for, for political and or statistical reasons. But anyway, the court was pretty clear that sampling could not be used uh, for, for apportionment. That, that was that those cases were really nailed down in, in 1990, around 1990. Then around the 2000 census, uh, let me step back a second. The way apportionment's done is a really uh, cool algorithm uh, where the, the 435 congressmen are, are, are sequentially distributed to the, um, to, to the, to the 50 states. Um, and so in, 19, in, in 2000, the 435th congressman uh, went to North Carolina, and if it had been a 436, it would have went would have gone to Utah. Uh, Utah was not happy, and, and they they first sued, um, saying, "Well, if you'd counted our overseas missionaries, uh, clearly we would have had uh, enough to to beat out North Carolina." Uh, the um, uh, the, the, the head of the census, uh, Jay Waite, was actually a fairly senior member of, of, of that church. <laughs> and, and he said, you, you guys probably counted those children at home anyway. But um, so anyway, they lost that pretty, court, pretty quickly in court. So then they came back and said, well, you, the Census Bureau has used uh, a whole person, whole, whole person imputation, strictly speaking, count imputation, uh, to, to come up with the numbers. Uh, count imputation is when you, you knock on a door Nobody answers, and the interviewer, after trying the best that, that, that she can, can't determine whether it's occupied or not, or if, if it's occupied, uh, whether anybody, how many people lives there. And so there's sort of three levels of count imputation. They can't even find the address. That happens sometimes. They're not sure whether it's a, a, a living thing or business. They find that they can't determine whether uh, it's occupied or not. They, or they're pretty sure that it's occupied, but they can't determine the number of people. So in each of those cases, since 1960, the Census Bureau has uh, imputed uh, the number of, of, of people living there. Well, Utah's argument was basically um, that sampling, you know, 
it didn't really, their argument, it doesn't really matter whether you, you, you count 1% and infer 99, or you count 99 and infer one. Uh, they're both, you know, mathematically, you're inferring the whole from the part and therefore it's sampling. The Census Bureau said, well, no, it's not sampling uh, for a number of reasons, very technical. Uh, and the, uh, this case went to the Supreme Court, and this is really one of the high points of, of, of my career because I was the, the chief uh, witness. It was uh, for the Census Bureau, and I got to actually sit in the Supreme Court when it was argued and, and, and work with the uh, Solicitor General of the United States and the former Solicitor General um, to prepare the case. And it, it, it's, it's a case that's now taught in law school as, as uh, when you take the course in argumentation, because what we came up with was just brilliant. Uh, I wish I could say I came up with it all by myself, but I didn't. And here, here's, here's, the, here's how we, we, we sold it. Uh, if, you, if you went into the uh, Supreme Court's library, you, you bring it home, Supreme Court's library, and you want to know how many books are there, and you counted the books on every other shelf and multiplied by two, uh, your honors, uh, that would be sampling. But what would you do if you were going down uh, the, 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 the shelves and you're going, you know, volume uh, uh, 11, volume 12, and there's a gap there, volume 14, volume 15, volume 16, why you would infer that, you know, volume 13 was probably checked out and um, you, you would count it. That, your honors, is imputation and that's the difference. And um, we won the case, um, just barely. It was, it was a very fractured uh, decision. But looking back, if we had lost that case, uh, if, if the, 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 the courts had said even this very uh, small, and it, it really is you know, less, around 1%, their very small use of statistics uh, is, is not allowed, then that would have you know, really prescribed hardly any uh, use of statistical inference for almost anything in the census. It, would, it really would have handcuffed us for uh, the use of say, administrative records in, in, in 2020. So it's, it was a, a very important victory in, in terms of it allows us at least some wiggle room uh, to use uh, statistical inference to come up with the counts. Yeah, you know, our, our podcast, we, we called it Stats and Stories. And it was purposeful, you know, in part because the, the statistics behind the story and the story behind the statistics was part of what we were hoping to explore as part of this podcast. And, and I was, it's, I'm delighted that you brought that, that up. In fact, my next question was going to be that because, you know, I, I love that you said two things. Well, you said lots of things I've really enjoyed. But, but you, you talked about if no one's criticizing you, it, it means you're not working on anything important. Uh, that was one of the quotes from your chance piece. And certainly the work that the, the, the census has been doing and kind of the attention it's gotten from many different constituencies is a clear demonstration of that. And, and you also said that one, some advice that you would give is no data without a story. And I, 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 that very much resonated you know, with something that, that was key for us. So I, I, I want to I thank you for, for bringing that out and also reinforcing that. It, yeah, it's it's what I, I I try to teach, and it's not always easy to come up with a story. But when I when we met with the the, the solicitor general uh, uh, General Olson, um, that was literally his first question. We sat down at the table, and his first question is, "How can we put this in the, in, in in the form of a of a of a story or an analogy?" And um, he was a pretty good lawyer. 
<laughs> well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Howard, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.